0: Welcome to the Pacho Perspective, a place where I share my perspective on everything in the space between life and death. I am your host, Pacho. Well, my Pachos Chachos, first of all, let me apologize for not making any content in a while. The wife got sick and needed someone then to put a little bit more uh, attention to the kids. So I had to do a little double duty, which is all right. And my wife now is uh, recovering nicely uh, from a cold. So um, that's what I was doing. So now that we are on spring break where I am, uh, I've got some time to work with you guys. So hopefully I'll be able to put in a, a couple of uh, shows or episodes rather this, um, this week uh, to make up for the lapse. So let us begin. Romeo and Juliet, Act 2, Prologue. All right, so this as well is said by the chorus, so no particular character in the play. And again here, Shakespeare wants to give us a little background information before we get into the play. Um, This will be the last prologue for Acts 3, 4, and 5. There are no prologues, and the reason I believe that is is because that's where the stuff gets good. You know, that's where the conflict really starts to take off and the problems really begin to intertwine and cause more problems. And I think because Shakespeare doesn't want to give any of the suspense away, you know, any of the, you know, turns and curves and twists in the plot that are going to be coming, uh, he doesn't give us a prologue. And so, as I said, this is the last prologue, so enjoy it. It is, again, written in a English sonnet form, so it has 14 lines. Uh, every line is an iambic pentameter, meaning there's 10 syllables, starting with an unstressed syllable, followed by a stressed syllable. And the rhyme scheme, based on the last word, or technically syllable, again, through the 14 lines, is a... B-A-B-C-D-C-D-E-F-E-F-G-G. Spaced out there for a second. So it goes as follows. Now old desire doth in his deathbed lie, and young affection gapes to be his heir. That fair for which love groaned for and would die, with tender Juliet matched, is now not fair. Now Romeo is beloved and loves again, alike bewitched by the charm of looks. But to his foe supposed he must complain, and she still loves sweet bait from fearful hooks. Being held a foe, he may not have access to breed such vows as lovers used to swear, and she as much in love her means much less to meet her new beloved anywhere. But passion lends them power, time means to meet, tempering extremities with extreme sweet. So what does that all mean? Well, old desire means Rosaline, a girl that he was in love with, that he was not really inclined uh, to tell Benvolio, but eventually, as we saw, he does. And now his old desire is in his deathbed, right? And so his desire for her no longer exists. It has passed on. And young affection gapes to be his heir. So young affection is Juliet. And she is now inheriting that throne that sits in Romeo's heart. That fair, remember fair meaning beauty, right? For which love groaned for and would die, right? So that love is Romeo groaning for and wanting to die because of beautiful Rosaline. Now, because he has met and matched with Juliet, is no longer beautiful. So Romeo is in love again, right? Even though he said he would never love again. And I like Bewitched by the Charm of Looks, which I think, again, Shakespeare is reminding us that the only reason that he is so infatuated with this girl is because of her beauty. Just like Rosaline, it was her fairness that he was enraptured with, and now it's Juliet's beauty. And so, again, how deep is this love? We really have to question it. And then it continues on, but to his foe supposed, which I think is interesting. You know, again, Shakespeare's interjecting here that they are supposedly foes. And so he has to complain, meaning, you know, he has to court her. But, you know, that idea that it's only supposed, you know, kind of speaks to that idea of tribalism that, you know, we're kind of just taught to blindly hate the other side without ever questioning the beginnings of anything. You know, like, it is possible for somebody who likes the Cubs and who likes the White Sox to have a relationship with each other. You don't have to hate the other side, but in Chicago, so many do. You know, but I think it's lovely on the television when they show the couples where, you know, the girl most likely is wearing the Cubs jersey and the guy, because he's a man, wears the socks. And I think it's charming. And so I think, you know, even Shakespeare here kind of acknowledges that idea of tribalism that, you know, that we really shouldn't be so proud of our looks, of our race, of our uh, nationality, you know, because that doesn't really make us enemies because we're different. And so that idea that we're foes because of different political ideologies or preferences and desires is silly. But anyway, back to the play. And she also has to steal sweet bait from fearful hooks, right? Again, implying that this relationship is dangerous because it's forbidden, or at least it's perceived to be forbidden by the children. So continuing in the turning point in line nine, being held a foe, he may not have access to breathe such vows as lovers used to swear. You know, Romeo can't just roll up to the front door, knock on it, and say, hey, what's going on, Mr. Capulet? You know, uh, I'm here to see your daughter. <laughs> you know, would be probably followed up with a shotgun to the face. And so, well, I mean, obviously they didn't have shotguns at that time, but you know what I mean. So he's going to have to find some clever way then to meet her. And then she, being a, a girl, has even less of an opportunity to meet her beloved anywhere, right? Because she's coddled and consented and protected and isn't, you know, just allowed to go out to philander on the street, like perhaps, you know, young men are allowed to do. Is it right? Or is it wrong? We're not making any judgments here. We're just talking about the time and how things were. Okay. Um, and so, They're going to have to find a way, and it's implied in the last two lines, that passion will lend them the power. Time will give them the means to meet where they will temper extremities, right? Those dangerous things because of their supposed enemy uh, relationship, but also balance that with the extreme sweet of actually getting to be together and exchanging, you know, one of life's greatest gifts, That being love. Well, that's end of the prologue, my pachos chachos, and the end of the, uh, first episode for this week. But I do promise that I'm going to make another episode on Wednesday where we will unpack, uh, the balcony scene, which is only scenes one and scene two, scene two being the balcony scene, because it's very long. It's where our lovers profess their love and kind of concoct a plan that will then, of course, go awry because such is life, right? Uh, just as I was unable able to create some content earlier last week, life, as I've mentioned before, always has a way of interrupting itself. And so, uh for Romeo and Juliet in the 1300s, 14th century, it was no different. And even Shakespeare recognized that writing in the 16th century, 1500s, that not much has really changed. And here we are, my beautiful Pancho's Chacho's 2023. And I mean, just look at our teenagers and we'll see that not much is different as well. But we'll unpack more of that on Wednesday, as I said. Uh, as always, God bless you, and I'll talk to you then. Hopefully, you'll be joining me. If you like it, remember, let, hit the like button. Subscribe if you haven't already. Please share me with any friends. I'd really appreciate it that you'd help me grow my podcast. Uh, but if not, it was a pleasure just speaking with only you. Take care. See you Wednesday.